how much money did you spend this week? You probably don't have a calculator that you are walking around with. Sometimes if you're dieting, you might count calories, but uh, we probably don't usually count how much we are spending. But on average, they say, this is just, uh, this is a couple years ago, so, um, you know, maybe it's changed, but on average between housing, food, cell phone, other expenses, Americans spend about $164 in any given day. Now, that doesn't mean that you're actually going to the store and spending $164, but if you just take up all the cumulative expenses, it's about $164 a day. And now you're like, oh, that's where all my money is going. Every single day I'm spending that much money? $164 a day, depending on, obviously, there's such a variety of income levels, but somewhere in the average of $3 million a lifetime is probably what you are going to spend, but it doesn't all happen at once. It kind of trickles out over time. Uh, this is, on average, kind of what we spend those things on. This is in a given year that most of it is your housing cost, about 33%. $20,000 or so. There's transportation costs. There's kind of retirement and safety costs, medical costs, food. Those, and then, you know, I don't know what this is. This has masks, which could be literal masks, or it might be, um, you know, I think it's entertainment is what the category is. $3,000 a year on entertainment, clothing for that t-shirt, $1,800. So, it, you know, you're, you're spending money in really a few big categories and then a bunch of little things that our money goes towards. And even during uh, the, the pandemic, they have said that Americans are spending $765 more a month than they did in 2020. And that's between, between dining out and travel and ordering everything online and, I mean, all those kinds of things, buying, you know, all the different things. Who knows, you know, if that's true in your life or not. But again, on average, we are spending more than we were even last year. So we're spending money all the time, right? We're spending money constantly, some things that are intentional, some that kind of just happen, but we're spending money all the time. And it kind of just trickles out. And an important question to ask as we talk about our life is how should we spend our money? And if we were to sit down and just talk with one another and I were to ask you, how should we spend money? Different people kind of have different philosophies on that. Some people really believe we should really be saving our money. That's where it should be spent. And you might not think of that as spending, but you're spending it by putting it away. That's where it's kind of being allocated. Some people think, man, you've only got one life. Just live it now. Have as much fun as you can. And, and you should spend your money making memories and having fun and, and traveling. And you should really spend money on those things. Or for some people, it's really about your development. So it might be education or it might be therapy or it might be a coach or it might be uh, a nutritionist or different things that we really say it should be kind of on our development. There's different philosophies that people have. But your money matters. If we talk about, I mean, this whole series, we've been talking about how your life matters, but money is such a big part of our life, right? I mean, we're spending $164 a day. We're spending millions of dollars over the course of our lifetime that your life matters. But if your life matters, that means your money matters because it's such a big part of our life. So many of the things that we do cost money. Our decisions are based on money. So much stuff happens and relates to money. So we can't talk about our life mattering if we don't talk about our money mattering and how that fits into it. And we want wisdom when it comes to money, right? We want wisdom. We want to know how to use it. For, for some of us, that might mean meeting with a financial planner and actually talking about, okay, I've got this money. Where, where should I put it? Retirement, investment, we, we want money wisdom. That might be that you, for some time, uh, you know, one of kind of a big name in, in Christian kind of money thinking is a guy named Dave Ramsey. He's made a lot of money telling people how to spend their money. Uh, and so maybe that's someone that you're like, I want money wisdom. So I'm going to listen to what he says. Or you might just go to certain blogs or maybe ask your parents or you discuss together. I mean, there's all sorts of different sources, but we want money wisdom, Right. We want to figure out how should I spend, how should I save, how should I invest. We want financial wisdom. When we have that, it gives us kind of a sense of confidence. We know where we're going. We feel kind of on solid ground. We know, okay, 
I know what I'm doing with my money. I feel a peace, even if I have to spend here or even if I don't have as much as I want. You, when you have financial wisdom, it gives you a sense of confidence. It can give you a sense of protection, security. And a lot of times, if you have financial wisdom, it leads to some of the outcomes that you desire. It leads to the things that you want. It gives you the ability to buy the things that you want to buy, to set up your life in the way that you want. We want financial wisdom. And what if we could have that even more than we have now? To be solid, to be secure, to know what's coming, to know that we're not missing some kind of wisdom that's out there. God wants to speak into this in our life. I mean, God gives us wisdom on all sorts of things, right? We come to God, and you want wisdom on all sorts of things from God. We want wisdom from God on our marriage. We want wisdom from God on our relationships, our emotional health. We want wisdom from God on what it means to have faith and trust in Him. We want wisdom from God on what do I do when I'm suffering? What do I do when I'm feeling anxiety? What do I do? I mean, we want wisdom from God on all sorts of things because we know that when God's wisdom comes into our life, that that helps us that that leads us to the better direction. We want wisdom, and God wants to give us financial wisdom. God wants to speak into our life. And again, I don't, I don't know where you come into this conversation. Maybe you've made really bad choices financially, and you go, man, I wish I would have had some financial wisdom 10 years ago or five years ago, or maybe it was last night. I don't know. You know you, we, we, we might come into this having made some really bad choices financially. And now you're trying to kind of recover from some of that. Or some of you come in here, really just, you're building your life. We have a lot of people that are beginning to start their families, first child, second child, buying a home, getting to that next stage in career. And so wanting to have financial wisdom is an important part of that. Some of us might come into this of, we're, we've lived a long life already, and we've spent a lot. That $3 million, we're already at 2.8. You know, we're, we're, getting, we're getting there. And, and, and that doesn't mean that there's still not financial wisdom to be had for the rest of our life. Some of you maybe are not Christians or unsure about faith, unsure what you think about that. Maybe some of you online are just checking out church for the first time. And when you hear money talked about at church, you get very anxious and kind of, oh, I knew it. And that's my job. You know, <laughs> you know the, one of the things about preaching through the Bible, instead of just picking what you want to talk about, is that you cover all sorts of things. The Bible talks about money a lot. And we have been going through the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, Jesus talks about money many different times because your life matters. Your life matters. And if your life matters, that means that your money matters because it's such a big part of our life. And God wants to give us wisdom in this area, the same way that he does with everything. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus gives to us today. I love this parable because it's very unique. It's the only one that's really like this, where the bad guy is the, the one that we're supposed to learn from. It's sometimes called the parable of the unjust steward or the parable of the dishonest manager. It's like the parable of Voldemort or something. You know, it's the parable of Darth Vader. It's, it's something we're supposed to learn from a bad guy. It's a parable that Jesus says, this person had some wisdom financially. And you need to learn, we need to learn about this kind of wisdom. God wants to bring wisdom into our life when it comes to our finances and he uses, Jesus uses this story of a villain to help us. And we're going to look at four pieces of wisdom that Jesus gives to us from this. That wherever we are financially, he wants to speak, he wants to lead us. So here it is. Luke 16. Jesus, now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you know, can no longer be my manager. So he has a manager. This person is mismanaging the funds. We don't, we don't hear the whole thing. Obviously, it's a parable, so he doesn't give all the specific details. But what we know is he has a boss and he's wealthy, he's rich, and the person managing his money is not doing it right. So he's going to get fired. 
Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I love that. That's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. He's like, what was my next career? I'm not strong enough to dig. I just, I love that. He's thinking, he's like, I'm not going into blue collar work. I am not strong enough to dig. Some of you, if you lost your job, you would say, I'm not strong enough to dig. I, I need to find a job at a desk. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he's building a plan. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Now, we don't obviously measure our money in oil and in grain, which is the next person, but this is a lot, okay? This is maybe a year's worth uh, of salary, maybe a few years worth of salary. People aren't exactly sure, but it's, it's a lot. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. So he owed 100, says sit down and write 50 on the invoice. Some of you wish that you had this creditor, right? You go into your student loans, how much do I own? Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Now, that's what he does. And here's what happens next, which we wouldn't expect either in this story, but it says this, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. So it's not that the master is happy that he's losing his money, but he just has to, he has to give him props. He sees what he did and says, wow, okay, that was, that was smart. That was shrewd. That was wise. Now parable ends and Jesus says this, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, here's kind of the moral of the story, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. So that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God wants to, Jesus wants to bring wisdom into our life financially. And this is a, a great parable that maybe, it's not one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's not the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. It's the villain parable that helps us Learn financial wisdom, which is what Jesus says we need. He says, this person was shrewd, and we need the shrewdness or the wisdom that he had. So here's four principles of wisdom financially that we can see from this that Jesus wants to bring into our life. Here's the first one. My money belongs to God. That's the first and most important financial principle. If you want wisdom financially in your life, this is where it begins. And generally, that's not where we start. Generally, if you are thinking about financial wisdom, usually what we start with is, and I've said this before because I've preached on money before because Jesus has taught on it before and keeps bringing it up, but generally we start with, what are my goals? What are my desires? That's usually the place that we start. We start with, what is it that I want? How much do I want for retirement? What kind of lifestyle do I want? Am I saving for a home? What are my goals? And then we might build backwards from there on what it means to live with financial wisdom. Jesus says all throughout the Bible and all throughout Luke, Jesus says, here is where you start. Your money belongs to God. Here's how he said it in the parable. If you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, the whole point is our money is not ours. It belongs to God. This is what, if you've been here on any of the other uh, stories that we've looked at or any of the other teachings that we've looked at where Jesus talks about money, this is kind of the constant thread throughout that we are stewards, that he is the master, whether that's the 10 minas or whether that is um, the, the story with Lazarus and the rich man. All of the different stories have this idea that we are to be faithful with what belongs to to someone else, which is that it belongs to God. We are God's managers. 
all of the money belongs to him. All the money belongs to him. If you, if you were to see um, on your porch the mailman sitting, we have some chairs on the front of our porch, and, and if, you were to, if, if I were to open the door and go, oh, I think the mail's here, and the mailman was out on the porch, and he was opening letters, and just, oh, this is so moving. Thank you for this message, Mom. Thank you. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's taking out the coupons. Oh, this is great. My wife loves giving her rewards from Ace Hardware Store. Oh, he's like, yes, an Ace reward, $10 reward. This is great. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I, I brought the mail. Yeah, but you're just the manager of that mail. You're supposed to give it to me. It doesn't belong to you. You're the steward of that mail. It belongs to me. You're supposed to just take care of it and give it to me. If you were to own a, a restaurant, or not own a restaurant, sorry, if you were a manager at a restaurant, let's say you were a manager at Chick-fil-A, that'd be a great job, right? If you were a manager at Chick-fil-A, and, and then Dan Cathy, I think that, I don't know if he's still the CEO, but at least he was the CEO, Dan Cathy shows up, and you've kind of changed the name to, instead of Chick-fil-A, you've changed it to, I'm, my name's Caleb, so Caleb Filet. And Dan is like, what are you doing? You're just the manager here. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but I, I think Caleb Filet has a nice ring to it. And we're going to start serving turkey burgers also. <gasps> you know, and, and we're going to start like uh, having beef and we're going to have making some changes around here. Dan would say, no, 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 no. You're the manager. You don't own this. Now, all throughout, those might seem crazy that the mailman opens your mail, Caleb Filet. That sounds horrible, right? It sounds like a, a, a cannibal store or something. But my money belongs to God. My money belongs to God. That is the first financial principle of wisdom that he gives to us. Listen, the fact that God created you means that you belong to him. The fact that God gave you gifts and skills and experiences and talents, that means that your wealth belongs to him. And if you're a Christian... You're not just, you don't just belong to God in general by the fact that you've been created and given life. You belong to him in the sense that now you are in his family and that you have said, my life is yours. I don't live for myself. I live for you. So you doubly belong to God for those of us that are Christians. My money belongs to God. So where does wisdom start financially? It starts with then having to come to God and say, so what do you want me to do with it? If my money belongs to God, financial wisdom has to begin with asking the question, God, what do you want me to do with it? Because it's not mine, it's yours. My money belongs to God, so wisdom begins with saying, so God, what do you want me to do with it? And listen, God's not silent about that. The Bible talks about money very often. And God is not silent. If we come to him with the question, what do you want me to do with it since my money belongs to you, he's not silent about that. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. Now, I want to just give you a little bit of an overview, but in the Old Testament, the amount that God required from his people was a tithe. This is Malachi 3.8. It says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now, that's strong language. And the point even of this little verse is to say, we don't think we're doing that. He says, you have robbed me. Not just that you are greedy. Not just that you don't use your money smart. He says, you've stolen from me. Because if all money belongs to God, we have to start with, so what do you want me to do with it? And that's why he uses the language of robbery. And the natural question that most of us would feel is, how have I robbed? I haven't robbed you. I never pickpocketed you. I never stole from you. But because we believe it's ours. And in the Old Testament, what God required of his people was a tithe plus contributions, which was a tithe means 10% of their income plus contributions went beyond that. Some, somewhere, maybe even upwards of 20% of the income that went to support the Levites and the temple system and all of that. Now, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we don't get those kinds of numbers. We don't get these percentages there's nowhere in the New Testament where you are going to hear from Paul or Peter or Jesus, you must give 10% of your money. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden in the Old Testament, 
God said, I want you to give this. And then in the New Testament, he said, now I don't care anymore. But here's how Tim Keller says this. I love this quote. Tim Keller is an author, pastor. He says this. There have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and asked about tithing, giving away a tenth of their annual income. They notice that in the Old Testament, there's many clear commands that believers should give away 10%. That's what we just talked about. But in the New Testament, specific quantitative requirements for giving are less prominent. They often ask me, you don't think that now in the New Testament, believers are absolutely required to give away 10%, do you? I shake my head no, and they give a sigh of relief. But then I quickly add, I'll tell you why you don't see the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. Think. Have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Usually there is uncomfortable silence. Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us or did he give it all? Tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. It makes no sense at all to imagine that God would have higher standards for his Old Testament people than he would for his New Testament people, who have far greater privileges. Almost certainly, Christians should consider the tithe the minimum standard for their giving and should always look to go beyond the tithe if they can. You might hear that and go, that sounds crazy, that's ridiculous, that's legalistic, there's 10% in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's grace, and we're not, but that's kind of his point, is to say, right, and whenever you hear Jesus teach, here's the kinds of things he says. You've heard it was said, Old Testament, do not commit adultery. And then he says, but I say to you, if you want to sleep around a little bit, it's okay. No. He always increases it, right? He always says, but I say to you, anyone who even looks with lust is committing adultery. You have heard it was said, do not kill. But I say to you, ah, oh, finally, we're past that legalism of not killing. But I say to you, anyone who has hate in his heart, anyone who says to his brother, you fool, you are guilty of murder. It always intensifies, and here's why. Because the New Testament moves away from a lot of specific things, and instead it focuses on the heart. But if we are aware of what that means, focusing on the heart never decreases. That's why in the New Testament it says things like this, and we're going to look at it. We already read it, but we'll look at it in a second. Hate money. That's heart-focused, right? That's not an amount, but hate money. What would our spending look like if we hated money? Or it says things like excel in your giving. That's heart-focused. That's not an amount. But if I said excel in this sport or excel in, um, in your job or excel in giving, that never, you would never go, oh, okay, so that means not do very much. That's how the New Testament always works is it focuses on our heart. Paul says, prove your love by your giving. That's heart-focused. We looked at last week. Jesus said, renounce everything you have. That's not a percentage. That's the negative side of heart focus. Renounce, hate, excel, prove your love. Look at what Jesus has done for you and give out of that. That's all the kinds of things that the New Testament says, right? So number one principle is this. My money belongs to God. It belongs to him. So a question that we always have to be asking is this. So God, what do you want me to do with it? What do you want me to do with it? I don't want to rob you. I don't want to take away what is yours. What do you want me to do with it? And God speaks to this. God wants us to be radically generous people. That is what God wants. He wants us to be radically generous people because he is a radically generous God. And oftentimes, I know, because I've been a pastor for a long time and have talked to people about this for a long time, I know a lot of times we can say, I, I don't think I can afford that. Now, maybe, maybe you are in poverty. Maybe you are a single mom raising kids and, it, and you genuinely can't afford this. But a lot of times what we mean by I can't afford this is I can't afford this after I've built my budget and built my life. But here's what that's saying. It's treating our money 
as if it belongs to us and God is extra. But if you went to your employer and they said, I can't afford to pay you this month, you wouldn't go, okay, that makes sense. You would say, no, that, that money belongs to me. I'm not extra. That money belongs to me. And they say, yeah, but I can't afford it because I just added an addition onto my house, bought a new couch. Uh, I, my kids, they've got, I got to pay for their college. Um, I, I also went to, I had a great meal the other night. And so I can't afford to pay you. You would say, but it belongs to me. Now, I know that's not an exact analogy, but I think when we oftentimes think about our budget, we think it belongs to me, and therefore, if there's room for what God says, then I'll fit him in. But we can't afford when we don't do that. Money principle number one is this. My money belongs to God. It's to, you want financial wisdom? It's not starting with what are my goals, what are my passions, what are my desires, what are my long-term goals, short-term goals, immediate goals. It's starting with coming to God and saying, God, it's all yours. Everything I have belongs to you. And you've given to me what I have for some reason, but it all belongs to you. I'm yours by creation. I'm yours by salvation. So everything I have is yours. That is the starting place of financial wisdom. That's number one. I think I'm understanding what Keller meant by uncomfortable silence. Number two, um, be faithful with what you have. Be faithful with what you have. This is the second principle. Oftentimes, we can think this. When I have more, then I will give. After I meet my savings goals, after I pay off debt, after I pay for college or pay for my kids' college, after I buy a house, after a lot of times, the way we think is after, once I get more money, then I will be able to be generous, I'll be able to give, I'll be able to be faithful. A lot of times, whether you use that exact language, that's how we think. Once I have more, once I get to this stage, once I get to this promotion, once I get to this income level, once I get to this place in life, once I pay off these things, once I have more, then I will be able to give. Jesus gives us the opposite wisdom from that. Here's what he says. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Here is the principle. The principle is to be faithful with what you have, which means if you only have a little, be faithful with that. And if you have tons, be faithful with that. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, my parents taught us to tithe. And I think the first amount of that was a quarter from my allowance. My parents were cheap. No, this is, this is the 80s, okay? So I was, I, I was able to tithe a quarter. My kids right now, they tithe from their allowance. And it's not tons. It's not something that most people, you're, you're, they're not going to write an article about it. You know, when you see these billionaires are pledging to give away such and such percent of their income, that, that's not going to happen. But to be faithful with a little, you can be faithful with $10, and you can be faithful with $100,000. You can be faithful with $10,000, and you can be faithful with 10 cents. You can be faithful with a little. That's where Jesus says to start, because it's not, once I have much, then I'll be faithful. Jesus says, no, be faithful with a little, and then be faithful with much. Continue to be faithful. If our posture is this... Everything I have, God, belongs to you. That's faithfulness or righteousness, as it talks about here. If you say, God, everything I have is yours. If you start there, that's true with whether you have $5 or $50. It doesn't, that posture will lead you and guide you. But if you say, once I have much, what you're saying is, once I get to this level, I'll start being faithful. And Jesus says, that's not how it actually works. And a lot of times, and this is true not even just financially, he's talking about finances, but this is true in, in everything in life, right? You don't say, I will be faithful over here when you haven't been faithful here. If you're not faithful, maybe some of you when you were kids, you mowed lawns or things like that. I, I used to mow lawns. If you're not faithful doing that, then you're not going to be faithful once you get a, a normal job. And if you're not faithful as a minimum wage employee, you're not going to be faithful when you get promoted to, to be a manager. 
If you're not faithful with a little bit, you won't be faithful with much. If, if, you, if as a kid you can't take care of a goldfish, you're probably not ready to babysit someone else's kids. I'm not saying it has to go in that order. But that, there's a progression of faithfulness with a little, and then God entrusts us with much because he sees our faithfulness. And we have to ask ourselves, if you have, if you have more money today than you used to have, why has God given you more? If you have more money today than you used to have, if you make more in your job, or if you have more, why? Why is God continuing to give you wealth? And maybe some of you have less. Maybe you've lost your job, or there's been financial crisis, so that, that situation doesn't apply to you. But the good news is you can be faithful with a little, and God views it as faithfulness. But if you have more, why did God do that? And the reason is because he wants you to continue to be faithful. He wants you to be a conduit of his generosity and love. God is a generous God. We know that, right? God is a loving God. God is a giving God. And over and over again, the Bible says that God wants to enrich us so that we can enrich others. That he wants to bless us so that we can bless others. I love the way that author Randy Alcorn, who's written extensively on money, he says that God does, not, God does not increase our wealth to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. And I think there's so much wisdom in that. Why would God continue to give us more? It's because God wants to continue to work through us, to love and bless and care for more people. Because God is a generous God. So that's principle number two. Be faithful with what you have. Third is this, spend for eternity. Spend for eternity. Jesus says that the world is smart in how they use their money. The children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. What he is saying here is the world's got a lot of financial wisdom, right? I mean, if you think about even just the concept of interest, that's a brilliant concept. If you think about the concept of insurance, that's a brilliant concept. If you think about casinos, that's brilliant. I mean, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's valuable and moral. I'm just saying it's a brilliant concept. There's wisdom there. Everybody thinks they're going to win and shining lights, and yet, how is this casino so big? They have a lot of money. How do they have so much money? Oh, because I'm going to lose my money, and they're going to tell me I'm going to win. There's a lot of wisdom that the world has when it comes to finances, whether that's interest or insurance or the stock market, the invention of that, or casinos or Ponzi schemes. Ponzi schemes are brilliant. I have one that I'd like to invite you to be a part. No, I'm just kidding. But Ponzi schemes are, are brilliant, right? You take this money from this person to pay off this. I mean, people have become multimillionaires from this stuff. The world has a lot of financial wisdom, Right? The world has a lot of financial wisdom. They think ahead, they commit, there's devotion, they're patient, they set goals. There's a lot of financial wisdom. And yet, Jesus says this, it's all going to fail. It's all going to fail eventually. He talks about worldly wealth and says it will all fail eventually. What that means is you came into this world naked and you're going to leave naked. You came with nothing, you leave with nothing. No matter how much money you make, no matter how smart you are financially, no matter how much you plan ahead, no matter how much goals you set, no matter how great you are at spending or saving, no matter the case, ultimately, the money will fail. Ultimately, we all die. That's what's ultimately going to happen. So, he says, we should be as shrewd and wise and strategic with our money as the world is. He says, often the world is wise, but the children of light, or God's family, are not. He says, we must be wise with how we use our money. We must be shrewd with how we use our money, which means this. It means to plan ahead, which is often what financial wisdom means. It means to have goals, which is often what financial wisdom means. It means to be committed and think carefully, which is often what financial wisdom means, but not in their way, but in a way that thinks even beyond, eternally. That thinks not just about the here and now, that thinks not just about retirement, that thinks not just about your kids, that thinks not just, but thinks eternally. 
That's financial wisdom. It's to think eternally. And here's what Jesus says that means. It's friendship. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about what happens after we die. He says, make friends for yourselves and they will welcome you in. And the picture of that is you dying and when you arrive into God's kingdom, there is a line of people waiting to welcome you, waiting to greet you into eternal dwellings, waiting to say, oh, it's you, come on in. Those, it means that you have spent your money here for a way that made a difference there. You've spent your money here on the things that have eternal significance there, on people, which means that you spent your money in such a way that people were cared for, people were loved, justice was fought for, the poor were taken care of, non-Christians were brought into God's family, God's church was able to thrive and flourish, the people, the friendships, that's the eternal significance, which doesn't just mean, okay, so I'm going to the bar and hanging out with my friends, it doesn't mean that, it's talking about eternity. It's talking about those things when we invest in people that have an eternal significance. That's what matters to God. Because why? Because that's God's heart. That's God's heart. He cares about people, right? I mean, if, God, if, 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 we, if we imagine coming to sit down with God and saying, God, what should we spend our money on? Of course, that's going to include people. Of course, it's going to include things that have eternal... Of course, it's going to include those that are not Christians finding salvation. Of course, it's going to include those that are poor being helped. Of course, it's going to include his bride, the church. Of course, it's going to include those things, right? To spend for eternity is to invest in people because that's what God's heart is. That's what God cares about. There's a lot of things that we can spend our money on. Listen... God loves you. You are the church. God loves the church. God loves his mission and helping people to know him. God loves people moving from death to life. Those are the things that matter for eternity. Last thing, last principle is this. Choose your master. Choose your master. And this is really the heart of the issue. It's hard to assess exactly, but commentators will say that somewhere around the range of 25% is how often Jesus' teaching was about money. That's a lot. If every, if every fourth sermon I preached on money, there might be a few of you here, right? <laughs> Jesus taught about 25% of the time on money. He taught more on money than he taught on heaven, than he taught on hell, than he taught on prayer, than he taught on faith, than he taught on marriage, than he taught on sex. I mean, all sorts of things that we would say are big topics. Jesus taught more on money than all of those things because we think about money a lot. We stress about money a lot. We have a lot of fear about money. We make a lot of plans for money. Why did Jesus speak so much to it? Here's why. Because it's the number one competitor to God in our life. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. And here's why. Because money is like a God. Think about what, think about what money can do for you and think about God and how these relate. Money can give you security, right? So can God. Money can give you joy and happiness. So can God. Money can give you meaning in your life and purpose in your life. So can God. Money can give you a sense of identity to know I make this much money, so okay, I'm successful, I've got some status. God gives identity. Money can do so much for you. It can provide for you, protect you, fill you with joy, help your anxiety, give you acceptance from other people. Give you, I mean, money can give you comfort. Money can do so much for you. 
which is why it's the number one competitor to God in our life. If you think about what there's God and then there's this, what might draw us away from God? What might cause us to live a life that is different from what God has? What might cause us to, to have our affection and our hearts be more focused on something else than God? Money is the top contender. Money is the number one competitor to our life than God. It is spiritually powerful. It's spiritually powerful. Which is why Jesus says, we will serve it. We will be devoted to it. It will master us. Now, let's just be honest and think about how many choices have we made about money? A lot of times we choose the career we're going to have because of money. Now, I'm not saying, listen, I, I remember having a conversation with someone once, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have made this choice, but I remember asking him, what's the number one thing that you just feel like you're gifted in, that you would want to do in your life, and they felt this passion for being a basketball coach for, for high school, or I think it was high school. That's what they felt like they were good at, what they really wanted to do. They felt they could invest in kids. That was everything but instead went into some form of business. Why? They said because they needed the money for that. Now, I'm not saying, again, that that's super bad. I'm just pointing out we make choices about money, and money governs a lot of our choices. Where we live, what we spend, what job we have. Some of you might, may have moved for a job. I'm not saying that's bad, but just think about how money controls so much of our life. We move for a job. Have you ever, I'm not saying this to try to make you feel guilty. I just want us to think about how money controls so much stuff. Have you ever moved because of God in some way? You were thinking about something related to God and said, you know what, I'm gonna move because of that. Maybe you have. I've met people like that. There's certain kind of um, community that they have and they need to get away from that and come somewhere. That's a choice to say, okay, I need to make this choice in my life for God. But if we think about money, it's very natural for us to make choices about money all the time, right? What kind of job we have, where we live, where we move. It's natural for money to actually master us and control us. It's natural for money to be the thing that we are serving, that we are devoted to, that we love. Which is why Jesus draws such a sharp line and says this. You cannot serve both God and money. You will hate and despise one, or you will, be, you will love and be devoted to one. That is a really sharp line, right? There's not any in-between. It's a very sharp distinction that he makes. Think about what's more natural. Do you hate and despise money? Probably most of us would go, I don't know if that describes how I feel about money. I hate and despise it. But Jesus is drawing a really sharp line, right? It's uncomfortable. If we take Jesus' words seriously, it's uncomfortable because most of us don't feel like this towards money. Oh, money? <laughs> Hate and despise it, right? That's not how most of us feel about it. But Jesus is saying money is so spiritually powerful. I don't, I don't think there's anything else in the Bible that he draws such a sharp line like this from this passage that Jesus does where he says, it's either God or this. You either love and are devoted to me, or you hate and despise me. So if we look at that, I just want you, look, I just want you to think about this. this. I've been thinking about it all week, okay? You can think about it for a few minutes. I, I just want you to look at this and go, do I hate and despise money? Jesus draws this really sharp line and says, love and devotion to me is exclusive to love and devotion to money. And we're in one of these categories. We have to pick. We're in one of them. It's powerful. But if that's true, if that's true, if Jesus is right, if he's not crazy, if he's not just kind of some crazy preacher that's you know, just trying to collect an offering, if, if he is right and knows our hearts, what he is saying is, I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to miss out on life with me from this false God. I don't want you to miss out on everything I have for you and instead to be mastered, controlled, 
led by, devoted to money. You see, Jesus sees our money issues and he cares. He knows that it can easily lead us away from him and he wants to free us. That's the language of master. He wants to free us from a false master because to be mastered by Jesus, think about the difference from being mastered by money and being mastered by Jesus. To be mastered by Jesus, if you're mastered by money, you're not at peace, right? Whenever you have felt kind of financial stuff, you're not at peace. We're worried about if we have enough. We're worried about if we're going to make enough. We're worried about spending, saving. To be mastered by Jesus, we're at peace. To be, to be led by Jesus, we're at peace with other people also. Doesn't money create conflicts sometimes between people? I've seen so many times in my family when older members in the family have passed that all of a sudden with inheritance issues and insurance issues, creating these fights that tear people apart. One of the top things that happens in marriages is people fight about money. But to be mastered by Jesus creates peace with other people. To be mastered by him, we're not hanging on to money, so it's not as important. We hate and despise it. We're love and devoted to him, which creates forgiveness and creates grace and creates unity. To be mastered by Jesus allows us to feel content no matter what our financial situation is. Listen, if money is God, then that means you have to have a lot of it. If not, you don't feel good, you're not safe, you're not comfortable, you're comparing yourself, but to be mastered by Jesus creates a contentment. It creates a contentment, it creates a joy. It allows us to say, I have everything I need, I have the protector, my future is secure, I have the comforter, I have the ultimate source of joy. To be mastered by him changes everything. It's so much better. And listen, I'm not trying to stand up here and say, I have this and it's perfect. And yes, I'm saying this is what Jesus leads us into. And it's more beautiful. This is what Jesus invites us into. It is a heart issue, not percentages. It's a heart issue. But that means it matters even so much more. And it means that what's available to us is even so much better. Which is why what he says is really the key when he says, either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. To use that language of love and devotion and hate, what Jesus is putting it in is covenant language. Devotion and love is this relational, covenantal language that he's giving to us. Where he's saying, listen, what will, what will change our money issues, what will give us financial wisdom is not just hating money and not thinking about money anymore and not caring about money anymore. It's, it actually goes deeper than that. It's who do you love? And that's an invitation. That's actually an invitation. When Jesus is saying, it's love and devotion to me that will change everything. That's him inviting us to say, and that's what I want for you. I want you to enter into a love, devotion, covenant relationship with me where you can experience me as the loving master, as the loving father, as he calls us children of light. He is better. This, this teaching on money comes right after three parables that we've looked at recently. The parable of Two of the parables we looked at at the very beginning of this series, which was the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then the next one is the prodigal son. And in all of these stories, you've got a person representing God that gives up everything and goes after to save and bring in, to rescue the lost sheep, to retrieve the lost coin, to bring in the lost son. The father, the, the couple sentences before Jesus teaches on this, what the father says to the older brother in the prodigal son story is everything I have is yours. You see, it's all of that that leads up to then Jesus teaching on this. Because all of that is God saying to us, Jesus reminding us, you already have everything from him. Jesus gave up everything for us. We matter deeply to him. He loves us. He's, he, when we're, we're going to take communion in just a moment. And when we remember in communion, it's that Jesus, his body was broken. His blood was shed. He gave up everything for us. 
He gave up everything and said, everything I have is yours. I love you. Now enter into a relationship with me where you live in that love and experience that love. All of us want financial wisdom. It's a big part of our life. Your life matters, which means your money matters. It's a big part of our life. And we will get our financial wisdom from somewhere. It might just be our instinct. It might be our parents. It might be blogs or someone that we pay. We'll get financial wisdom from somewhere. But imagine actually having God's wisdom. Actually living in God's wisdom. If you had the best worldly financial wisdom you would probably say, wow, that led to such a great outcome in my life. Imagine what happens if we have God's wisdom and what that leads to and what life that creates and the eternal impact that that has and the people's lives that it changed and the freedom and the peace that it creates internally and with others relationally. Here's what this means. Our money matters. And I can give you two quick practical applications as you think about this. The first is just very concretely, look at your budget. If you don't have a budget, make a budget and then look at it. Look at your budget and say this week, God, what do you want me to do with it? Assess your budget and say, God, this belongs to you. What do you want me to do with it? That's the first thing. And then second, really built on that, is I want to encourage you to give financially, to consider the things that we talked about. I'm not going to tell you a percentage, an amount to give, but I want you to be led by everything that we have looked at and what Jesus says and to say, it's all yours. And give. And see what God does in your heart. As we take communion, take some time and pray. If you didn't get one of the little cups on the way in, you can grab them in the back. And communion is just a time that Christians remember what Jesus has done for us. Take some time and confess if, if we've sinned. Confess where there's been robbery to God or greed or focus on ourselves. Confess. Jesus forgives. That's what we remember when we take communion. And then worship him, remember him, thank him for giving everything to us. I'll pray for us and then just take a couple minutes where you are and pray and then we'll respond in singing our last few songs. God, I thank you that you gave all to us. As we sang in the beginning, you are a good God and your goodness never ends and you have been constantly good to us, constantly faithful to us. Everything that you have you've given to us. You gave us your own son. How much more does that prove how much you are for us and everything else? So God, I pray that as we even now take communion and sing that you would embed these truths into our hearts and that we would be a people that reflects your generosity to us. That you would be our master, not money. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.